Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. And now Texture is offering listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash happened. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we had a Tuesday that some would say was far more super than most other Tuesdays, as voters in 11 states took to the polls to weigh in on who should be the presidential nominees. One person who might say it wasn't that super is Marco Rubio. But beyond the winners and losers, what we learned from Super Tuesday is that big realignments are afoot for both the Republicans and the Democrats. Meanwhile, this week we're putting a spotlight on the war on terror. Joining us is Amal Alderat, whose father and brother, both Libyan-American businessmen, were detained by the United Arab Emirates in 2014, jailed, and brutally tortured. Now the two men are facing trial in the UAE, and Ms. Alderat is speaking out about their wrongful arrest and persecution. Our big question, why are two Americans being tortured by a U.S. ally, and what does that portend for our ongoing strategy in Libya? Finally, we welcome comedian Anthony Tamanek, who's been touring the country with James Adomian as the two men offer their nation their take on a Trump versus Bernie debate. We'll talk about what inspired Tony to take up the task of imitating Donald Trump and his very real fears of a Trump presidency. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. We will also have a full recap of this week's Republican debate and their hour of chaos. In fact, that's what's happening first. Hello to everyone and welcome to another edition of So That Happened your go-to podcast for politics in America and how we're depressed about it. Uh, I'm Jason Lincolns, host of... Uh, I'm Jason... I'm Jason Lincolns, the editor of Eat the Press. I'm joined today by my pals, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Lauren Weber. Oh, hey. And we have just come from watching the most recent debate on Fox News tonight. And to my mind, the big news of the debate maybe was the news that came in at the end all week, literally since super Tuesday, we have watched, uh, Donald, the, the opponents of Donald Trump, mostly Marco Rubio, but, and his affiliates in the conservative consultosphere, uh, sort of talk about how they were maniacally opposed to Donald Trump's ascension as a nominee. The hashtag never Trump has been trending on Twitter, uh, Rubio, his campaign has promoted that hashtag. Uh, it's a de facto abrogation of the pledge he took to support the eventual nominee, uh, seemingly a thing that once said could never be unsaid. And then at the end of the debate tonight, he unsaid it. They asked each candidate if they'd support, well, they asked the Kasich, Rubio, and Cruz if they'd support Donald Trump, and they asked Donald Trump if he'd support the eventual nominee, which I'm sure he presumes is going to be himself, so why would he answer in the negative? But they asked each of them if they'd support Donald Trump, and Rubio said, yeah, sure, if he's the eventual nominee. 
wavering, flip-flopping, a little feet of clay there? Well, it's not wavering from the pledge. It's wavering from the hashtag. Correct. Pledge is probably Trump hashtags. But it, it's, uh, it goes against what had been building up all week, which was more yeah, than a Romney. hashtag. It's just uh, uh, Mitt Romney, the consultosphere that revolves around the quote unquote all these people. Yeah, the establishment. They said never Trump. And all the candidates at the debate said maybe Trump. Yeah, they, forced... they all wussed out. They all wussed out. But that's amazing because they had forced me as a chronicler of this nonsense. And a, <laughs> that's a great as, title. That should be a new title. Ex- exactly. I should not be editor of Eat <laughs> no, the Press. Chronicler of this nonsense. Jason Lincoln's chronicler of this nonsense. Um, but as a chronicler of this nonsense, I was forced to write a number of pieces explaining how the emerging strategy on the Republican side, at least the anti-Trump Republican side, was going to Cleveland and busting up their own convention. And... That doesn't work if Rubio is saying, oh, I'll support the eventual nominee. Although, honestly, I mean, there's still time for them to backtrack away from this. This is not the end of the day. And it was the end of the debate. And everyone was tired. Everyone is tired. I mean, are you really going to make your last stand in 30 seconds? <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on. I mean, the... I'm just I'm just I'm just gunning for a brokered convention. I just want it to happen we're, so bad. We're all gunning for a brokered convention. But, you know, a cynic would say that as Donald Trump moves to consolidate the the nomination and consolidate support, that all these guys who have stood up and said, no, nah, I won't back him. I hate Donald Trump. He'd be a terrible nominee. Come May, June, July, we'll be saying, you know, I can live with Donald Trump. I can support Donald Trump. That's what the cynic would say. Tonight, Rubio kind of made the cynics look good. Yeah, sooner than May. It, it, uh, this whole Never Trump thing could be over. They could all join Chris Christie with the wordless screaming <laughs> behind <laughs> the stage. Yeah, that's, yes, that, that Chris Christie is definitely the saddest little sad sack Hostage out there in the land. Situation um, central. But let's Talk, get into the, tonight's debate. The we, way the debate started was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, we were not a quarter hour into it when Donald this Trump um, decided that it was important that he attest to the adequacy of his penis. Not not that <laughs> it's big, but that it's adequate. Right. He said, like, there's no problems. Welcome he, to political discourse in 2016. Well, I mean, I, we're well past the post, and I'm pro-dick joke, but it was still, even to me, amazing to see this happen. Are small on the children debate. watching this debate? No, yeah, it's like, late. Yeah, it's, it's, it's small past. children were participating in this debate. <laughs> I don't know who was watching it, but yes. So in response to the insult that Trump has small hands, which Rubio had made like part of his stump speech for a bit. <laughs> which, once again, stump chronicler of nonsense. I, I have to. So, s- so, so Trump held up his hands. They say I have small hands. I've never heard this in my life. Even though he's definitely heard like, this. We in know his life. It, it really riles him. He angrily wrote a letter to Graydon Carter saying, you know, I've got perfectly normal-sized fingers. Not just one letter. He repeatedly sends Graydon <laughs> Carter, who's, who is at the time the—when when all this—okay, the background. 
Way back when, there was a magazine. Okay, background. Way back when, kids, there were these things called magazines. You could buy them in newsstands <laughs> and read them. One of those magazines is called Spy Magazine. Graydon Carter was one of the people associated with it. And Spy Magazine, way back, we're talking in the 80s and 90s, came up with a wonderful little term for uh, Donald Trump, short-fingered vulgarian. And it got completely in Donald Trump's head. And ever since, even now that Graydon Carter's at Vanity Fair, Donald Trump will actually clip out pictures of him that have been in the news where his hands are in the picture and he will circle his hands and say, look, see, I don't have small fingers. So the idea, this is what's extraordinary to me is because uh, everyone's- They do gonna, look small. The, they do okay, look small. But the maturity level here, let's let's just focus on that it's here. Telling, so, it's telling that I'm more aggrieved by the fact that he lied about never having heard the small hands thing than I am about the fact that he talked about his cock. Well, so he said that, you know, they say if you've got small hands, you have small, you're small somewhere else, where I just want to assure everybody there's no problem. I just, how much, do you, it's how not much a problem. would you want to bet that Melania has to come out and say something about this Look, in the next couple of days? I do not want to encourage fact-checking about <laughs> Donald Trump's just... wang. Let's just nip that in the bud. We're going to assume the best, okay, because I don't want to get into it any further. But there were a lot of times tonight where the the uh, conversation did manage to devolve. And I think that despite the fact that they both came around to saying, well, we'd support him in the end, uh, Cruz and Rubio did manage to continue their broadsides against Trump for all the reasons they brought up in the first time. The, his fraudulent Trump University, his uh, feet of clay on, uh, on, on immigration, uh, his failed business practices. Uh, it still feels like it's a little too little too late, though. It's 100% too little too late. Even though all Trump said in response was... My polls are good. My polls are good. You're little Marco and you're lying Ted. And we're, we're building a wall. As in the last debate, Trump seemed to be reeling and on his heels, but of course it won't matter. What are the... You know, what do we think the numbers are on tonight? I mean, how many people do you think tuned in this late in the game? I wouldn't even begin to be able to tell you that. Because right. I would agree that I felt like Trump was on his heels. I mean, I think this is one of his lesser debate performances because actually everybody was able to land some punches. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I including the moderators, Megyn Kelly at one point really had Trump sputtering when she brought up these various foreign policy things where his position was unclear. The video clips? The, yeah, and she used video clips yeah. to show, here's what you said before and how you contradicted yourself. And Trump was standing like, uh, well, you know, I said, okay, and, uh, you know, I was meek. He's saying things that were not thought out at all. At all. And without material, he, he, he wasn't that good. Like, it, it was not a good improvisation for him. No, it's hard to say, we'll build a wall when someone shows you a bunch of clips of you saying two different things right after each other. Yeah, one of the big issues tonight was, of course, this uh, the story that broke in BuzzFeed about how Donald Trump had given an interview to the New York Times editorial board. Part of it was off the record. And the the scuttlebutt is, it's the talk of the New York Times newsroom, apparently, and the talk has now uh, gotten so loud that someone took it to BuzzFeed, is, is that he said something off the record that basically implied, well, I've been talking a good game about immigration, uh, big things I want to do, making Mexico pay for the wall, uh, it's going to be a wall across the border, it's going to be... Uh, we're going to deport everyone in the country, but I want you to know off the record that these are just, this is just bargaining tactics. This is me going big at the outset as my opening bid and hope that we land somewhere in the middle where it's acceptable, which by the way is pretty typical Washington way bargaining of, tactics. It's, it's his etch-a-sketch. Yeah, etch exactly. Sketch. Exactly. It's his etch-a-sketch. Uh, 
and and uh, he was repeatedly asked to just come clean on it. If there's no, no big deal, just right now, tell the New York Times, release the tapes. And he kept dodging and weaving on that. Well, he didn't dodge and weave. He said, well, I can't because, you know, I promised the New York Times. It was great right. when he was, he was, like, he was, de- he was defending the ethics of journalism, which was just so interesting coming out of so the you mouth can, you of can, Donald Trump. It's not an agreement that it's it's yours to break. Yeah, you can exactly. say whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah, he can. They're the only ones who are supposed to not be leaking it. Yep, he can relieve them. Why of did that he think anyone would understand that? That was very strange. Well, I mean, I think his supporters right now it just doesn't matter. They're all of course uh, not. Oh, because it's yeah. liberal media. Because. I'll say if this had been a debate that had happened in you know the summer of 2000 last year, it, it might have done more damage because Donald Trump's response to every negative thing was like, "Oh, I'm beating you in the polls," uh, and whenever someone was into a broadside against him, he would just stand there going, "Wrong, wrong, lying, Ted, little even Marco." Though, even though what they were saying was correct. I would agree. I mean, I think that goes back to our original point. It's it's too little, too late. I mean, what effect does this have? that he got a couple punches in this debate. Right, we thought after the previous debate where he'd been hammered and pounded that there might be some effect, but no. Nope. Here comes Super Tuesday, he won everything. Well, the, the I mean, the, the Never Trump faction will tell you that they moved the needle in that debate and that Donald Trump ended up on Super Tuesday underperforming his poll numbers and Rubio and Cruz made up ground on him during that five-day period. And they think sustaining the attacks will make a big difference on the 15th when Ohio and Florida vote. But if Kasich doesn't win Ohio, if Rubio doesn't win Florida, then the whole keep Donald Trump under the number of delegates he needs to national nomination outright plan goes right out the window. But I want to end just by sort of saying generically, I thought that Brett Bayer, Megyn Kelly, and Chris Wallace did a really fine job tonight. Best moderation I've seen in a long time, and it's been a long slog through these debates. It's funny that it was once controversial that the RNC was positioning these debates to uh, be moderated solely by conservative media and conservative moderators. But I think that the Fox team especially goes out and proves every night that they take the job of sorting out who is conservative on what policy and why very seriously. They hit them harder. And they have to be more accountable to them because you can write off some of the other media outlets occasionally, it seems like, if you're one of these supporters. Chris Wallace is underrated as one of the great Sunday show interviewers, and he brought uh, infographics because he's he laid traps for Donald Trump on his completely false and phony promises about the savings he'd get by negotiation negotiating prescription drug prices. It was brilliant. Yeah. It was great work by uh, Chris Wallace. <laughs> Look, Fox I watched News. I watched Fox News Sunday for 6 years and I could tell you that every once in a while there's a Dick Cheney interview where Chris Wallace does the tongue bath routine. But more often than not, <laughs> more often than not, he really does lay into people for their policy positions, conservatives too. And he seems to find he, I, the, the the interesting thing about Wallace is that the moment someone thinks that they can roll him, he gets really he gets really tenacious after that. If you go at Wallace really hard, he digs down. He b- bears his teeth a lot. He's much more aggressive to people that just won't sit there and shut up and let him have his question. And tonight, it was once again like that. That Wallace ruled. That Wallace ruled. Any final thoughts tonight? We've got one more of these debates next week, guys. Oh. Two more. Well, one, okay, but one, one more, more GOP, yeah. And then I think we're done. I think we're done. Oh, glory have it. If, if only. If only. Any, fi- any final thoughts about tonight's debate? 
Arthur. Maybe Trump. <laughs> and, and Lauren. Uh, can Megyn Kelly be the GOP nominee? Oh, boy. that uh, Now you may have lost me. But I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the enthusiasm. Actually, you get the sense that maybe anyone else would be competitive in this race. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's the debate. One more, and we're done with debates forever, hopefully. God help us all. We'll be right back. Stick around because we have a really fantastic show. Hey, everybody. Thanks to pizza, we're all binge eating. And thanks to Netflix, we're all binge watching. And thanks to whiskey, well, we are drinking whiskey very moderately, very socially acceptably. Come on now. But with texture, you can now start binge reading. Trust me, it's about to be a thing. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place, your smartphone. Texture has completely reimagined magazines, giving you the articles and stories you really want all in one place, plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations just for you. Texture offers unlimited access to all of your favorite reads for less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store. You can browse hundreds of magazines at your leisure and cherry pick the articles that interest you the most. What's more, Texture offers a lot of cool features that allow you to go deeper. They have a full supply of recommended stories every day, plus carefully curated collections that let you dive down deep into topics. So now I'm not just reading Entertainment Weekly or Bloomberg Business Week. I'm getting a rich supply of related articles that make everything come alive that much more. And you know what? It's environmentally friendly. It's shareable with your whole family, and it will prevent that pile of back issues on your nightstand from growing to unimaginable heights. Here's the best part. Texture is offering listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. So stop wasting time, paper, and money. Take advantage of this offer right now and get busy reading some serious magazine know-how. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. And hey, hey, welcome back. And I'm joined by the regulars. We got Zach Carter over here. Hey, Jason. I got Arthur Delady over here. Hey, audience. And uh, yo, so Super Tuesday. It was. It lived up to its name. You think so? You think it was super? It was a pretty fun night to watch. I'll be honest. I very rarely get uh, get you know. The, the sort of joy I get from watching, like, say, college basketball from actual political coverage, but it was one of the rare moments where I was just looking at the scoreboard, tingling with excitement, and then, <laughs> and then laughing at Marco Rubio. It was. It should be said, we were also looking at a literal college basketball game that night, too. <laughs> yes, I was watching <laughs> a Grindr. hockey game. Right, so we, yeah, the Super Tuesday is the great thing about covering primaries is there's long periods of time where you're doing nothing but cable watching cable news to make up their mind about what's going on. And so you can like distract yourself, talk amongst yourself and get up on stuff. Uh, and I think that the story of super Tuesday, as far as the Republicans go, was that Marco Rubio really botched it. Yeah. uh, Like he's botched most of the campaign. I mean, frankly, and, and I think it's, we should not reserve our mockery for for Marco Rubio exclusively because the entire establishment field in the Republican Party has been botching this thing for like nine months now. Remember Scott Walker? He was running for president. He was considered a favorite at one point in time. Yeah, that He's was gone. A, I was one of the people Marco who Marco Rubio him. won Minnesota, dudes. 
Yeah, it's totally going to do it. You're right. Never mind. I rescind it. First, you take Minnesota, then you take the world. Yeah, but no. Critically, critically, I think that I think that Marco Rubio didn't go into the night thinking he would win many states. Uh, and I would I would dispute the fact. I would I would I would mildly dispute the idea that what Marco Rubio needed to do was literally on Super Tuesday win states. But what he desperately needed to do was clear a certain number of delegate thresholds. And every state apportions their delegates delegates differently. Uh, but to get any kind of apportionment, you need to achieve a certain percentage of the vote. In most cases, it's twenty percent, which should not be a tough hang for A, the establishment darling, and B, a guy who's now become the avatar of the hashtag never Trump movement, but in states where he really could have hauled off some delegates, he failed to meet those thresholds. He didn't do it, and it marked a turning point in the campaign where Donald Trump came out and said, after having already racked up a half dozen of his seven victories, that he was going to be a unifier and that he was going to make deals with Congress. And he also threatened Paul Ryan, which was amazing. But uh, that's that's now what he's doing. <laughs> the Republican Party has, I think, at least the establishment here in Washington, has just completely lost touch with where its voters are. I mean, the, the Republican Party for a long time has been built on this sort of tacit alliance between people who vote out of racial anxiety and people who vote for tax cuts for wealthy people. And it's pretty clear that the people who vote out of racial anxiety are... Don't care about tax cuts for wealthy people. Just don't care about the economic platform anymore. They've been voting for Republicans for 30 years. They still feel like they're getting fucked over. And if you look at at some of the demographic statistics, there's a case to be made that they are still getting fucked over. I mean, white working class people in the United States have have, they're they're the only demographic that has a lower life expectancy now. Than, than they had 30 years ago. They're dying from suicide, they're dying from alcohol addiction, and they're dying from opiate addictions. So it's actually a population that, is, that, that has a reason to feel besieged and to see no relief in, in the form of tax cuts for rich people. So I, I think until the Republican Party faces up to that, they're going to keep getting screwed by people like Donald Trump. If, it's, you know, if, if Trump doesn't win the presidency this time around, there will be somebody else who, who figures out that this is a winning strategy within the GOP in 2020. This is going to be a, an ongoing fight within the party for years to come. We were talking after 2012 about the RNC autopsy, what they said needed to be done to win. And they said things like we needed to pass immigration reform. We needed to mend fences with the Hispanic community. But they did talk a lot about actually getting out into the streets and communicating with voters. It seems to me that was something that they really failed to do. But look, I think... While this realignment is happening on the Republican side, I think Democrats are missing because it's it's let's be honest, Democrats are are a little bit horrified by the by the Donald Trump spectacle, hopefully a lot horrified by it. But it's also, I think, for many Democrats, kind of fun to watch the Republican Party blow itself up. They've this is just something that Democrats enjoy doing, if they're being honest. But there is a huge realignment happening on the Democratic side as well that I think people are missing. Before we get to that, I just said the to counter what you were saying, Donald Trump's not going out and talking to anybody. It's a, a, a weird thing about this. He doesn't do retail politics. He explicitly skips that and just makes speeches. Yeah, but he's he's more or less expertly embodying the kind of things that those yeah. people expect a Republican president to do, to say that we will fight foreigners, that we will uh, make better deals. Uh, and and it, what's interesting is that is that obviously what he's promising is something that is akin to big government. And, yes. And he doesn't explain, of course... 
uh, any of his policy platforms because I think it would then reveal the big governmentness of it, or it would reveal the fact that he doesn't have a fucking clue about how he's going to achieve the things he wants to do. But to the ears of his voters, it sounds like finally there's someone on their side. Yeah, yep. and he only needed to eat one burger to get that message out there. Take a few and kids I, up in his helicopter. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go. But but Zach, okay, the Democratic realignment. Yeah, so look, uh, the Democratic Party for the last, I would say, six years, since the financial crisis, has largely, the, the main source of energy and momentum within the party has been from uh, the Elizabeth Warren wing of the party. That wing is now represented by Bernie Sanders because he's the one who decided to run for president. Um, but this has been an anti-corporate um, sort of Wall Street accountability, economic-focused wing of the party. Hillary Clinton is not from that wing of the party. And if that wing of the party gets defeated in the way that Hillary Clinton currently appears to be defeating it, she's done it by saying single-payer health care not only is unrealistic, but actually a bad policy platform, um, something Democrats you know, five years ago would have been horrified by. Now they seem fine with it. Um, she said that too big to fail is not... She and her supporters have said that too big to fail is really not that big a deal. She's basically said we need to regulate banks more closely than we do now, but not called to reshape the, the, the financial sector. We're seeing the Democratic Party move toward, move away from this sort of populist economic corporate accountability energy and towards just sort of a more diversity-focused message where whatever happens in the corporate boardrooms and with inequality, you know, we're going to try to work on that, but we're going to make sure that if we have inequality, that we at least have you know, a certain degree of diversity within the the ruling technocratic class. So we're going to have more diversity in boardrooms. We're going to have more diversity on Capitol Hill. But the overall inequality between the poor and the rich, that is not something that the party is going to focus on quite as much. But on things like uh, universal health care, Hillary Clinton doesn't say it's a, necessarily that it's a bad idea. She She's, says single payer is a bad well, idea. She, she says it's, in, I mean, uh, more than that, though, her message was that it was politically impractical. Yeah, but she's also explicitly argued that it's a bad it's bad policy that it it will be a bad idea to do this because it it the 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 potential to, you know, th- there will be inevitably winners and losers in a program that changes the healthcare setup. And she has said that the cost of the you know, the people who will lose out from a universal healthcare platform, a single payer Medicare for all system, uh that that's that that is not worth doing. Uh, because everyone would lose their insurance. Right. Well, they would get you would go through. Well, you would go through the process of of losing. Well, your you would insurance. be remaking a market all over yeah. again. And as President Obama found out, having promised no one would lose their health care. Right. When you remake a market, there are repercussions, and they do not fall neatly and cleanly on everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I had thought of Hillary's message as like I'm just a little more practical, and these these ideas are great, but they they're not going to get through Congress. This is what I want to ask you about. Then you say there's a realignment occurring, but it seems to me that if Hillary Clinton wins the election, as she could very well do uh, on these arguments. And there is a banking crisis and there's a too big to fail banking crisis. It seems to me that the the grassroots and the Democratic Party will never forgive the Democratic technocrats. I think that's right. And I also think it's not too late for Hillary Clinton to, um, let's say, adjust her, her course here. I mean, there are people within her campaign, like Gary Gensler, for instance, who's the CFO of the campaign, uh, major manager there, uh, who was the best, by far the best regulator that President Obama had uh, in 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 his t- time in office, and uh, and the fact that he has a job with her now, and that Barack Obama didn't in fact reappoint him, shows that she she has parts. There are some people talking to her who are telling her it's really important to stay close 
with this wing of of the party. Um, and it's it's possible she could she could end up listening to those people. You know, Jamie Dimon said uh, during the, the, the sort of post financial crisis hearings that we shouldn't be surprised when we have financial crises. They historically happen every seven or eight years. Well, you know, it's it's been seven or eight years now. That's so true. it's uh, you know there there is going to be some sort of financial problem in the next probably in the next presidency, not necessarily as catastrophic as two thousand eight. But financial problems result in recessions, and then recessions result in the political po- party in power losing. And so I, th- I think you will see, uh, uh, you have the potential for the party to then realign, you know, another three or four years down the road. But I think right now we're seeing a big shift in the party away from this focus on economic inequality and corporate accountability and towards a, sor- a sort of more demographic focus on, on, look, I mean, Hillary Clinton's candidacy depends pretty much entirely on getting black people out to vote, right? Bernie Sanders has completely failed at winning over black voters for whatever reason. He just he just does not appeal to black voters. And so we're going to see more focus on, on just figuring out ways to get black people to come out to vote, more ways to get gay people to come out to vote. Whatever issue it is that is not economic, that can get these people to come out to vote, that's what Hillary Clinton is going to do. And there are going to be a lot of good policies that result from that, but it's not going to be a focus on corporate accountability. The, what's interesting to me is yes, you just said that we're we're due for another financial crisis, or rather, that Jamie Dimon said we're due mm-hmm. for another financial crisis. Uh, if one happens between now and November, uh, everything that uh, we're, we're, Clinton has nowhere to go. The whole, I mean, the Democratic Party is screwed if one happens between now and November. I mean, Wouldn't that just be terrific for Bernie Sanders? Politically speaking, if it happens in the next couple of weeks, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can, we, he, he, let's let's just be clear: we're not rooting for a financial crisis to happen. No, but uh, if you if you be it, terrible. There, he if he has a path to the nomination, it would take a massive disruption. It seems because his uh, his delegate uh, path forward. Brian Grimm and I and, and Zach, you were part of this too. We we gamed out the scenario right. where something like this happens. Game it and out for us. Those scenarios exist. Uh, there could be some interplay between the oil markets and the stock markets. There could be a stock sell-off. There could be uh, a credit crunch on banks that made it harder to lend to people. I mean, that's really the best case scenario, I think, for a for a, a a sort of like shock to the economic system. I think it's fair to admit we're dancing on pins a little bit. I, it's. I think it's. It's very unlikely that we're going to have a financial crisis that benefits Bernie Sanders. And even if we did, just remember that it's extremely difficult for any party to hold on to the presidency for twelve years. It just doesn't happen that often. Yeah, definitely. And so the the result would be, I think, voters punishing the incumbent party, whoever their new standard bearer is. So I think it would be very difficult for Democrats to end up winning the presidency if there was a financial crisis before before November, or even just, you know, a mild economic downturn. I think that makes things particularly difficult, and which is why, you know, a Trump candidacy, which is b- based on rank bigotry, is so dangerous, because he is not only making a bigoted pitch, he's also making a populist economic pitch. When he talks about his economic policies, they're completely ridiculous and they will never happen, but he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. And when he says you, he means working class white people, but I'm going to do it through trade policy. I'm going to protect your social security. I'm going to make sure that you get all of the goodies that Republicans have been telling you to be ashamed of for the last several years. I think specifically the idea uh, with Trump is that, is that these, these, uh, these outgroups, minorities, blacks, African, African Americans, Latinos, uh, have already accrued these benefits at the expense of working class whites. That's literally 
the kind of Scott Walker pitch he made during his gubernatorial career, except he specifically pointed the finger of blame at public sector unions and public sector employees and said, yeah, we got screwed in the financial crisis, but you know who really's making off with your money? Teachers, firefighters, policemen. Got to well, bring those they, guys they, you to know, heel. They're, they're actually And he generated a lot of enthusiasm in Wisconsin among poor people to fight and attack other relatively but poor people. If you if you look at presidential campaigns of the past that exploited a Southern strategy, they were all about welfare and food stamps. And th- those topics are totally absent from the presidential debate right now. Maybe that'll change in a general election, but they are curiously absent. Instead, he does talk about like social security and trade and jobs. But that's what's interesting about this campaign is that some of those issues don't come up. You know, we've people have complained that we don't have a lot. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A lot of robust questions about reproductive rights on the Democratic side, but there's an argument to say, why ask them? We know where these people's stance on this is. But look on the Democratic side. I mean, I think I think what Jason is talking about there shows the extent to which this realignment is happening. What the Democrats are fighting over, to the extent that they fight anymore, is over economic policy. Yeah. The, the reason they don't talk about abortion, the reason they don't talk about immigration reform, the reason they don't talk about affirmative action is because those things are settled. That is now a core a, a core policy platform of the Democratic Party that nobody is going to fuck with for the next 10 years. That is just going to happen. The economic policy side, where things looked like they were shifting in a more populist direction, I think we're watching the tide move in a different direction. All right. Well, we will find out, I think, one way or the other. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hello, hello, we're back. Uh, I'm back with Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. Studio Tent Denizen. And uh, joining us on the phone today is a man who you may have seen dressed as another man 
yelling at minorities. Anthony Atamanek, uh, comedian extraordinaire. He has been touring the country with James Adomian, uh, doing mock debates between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. This is a great country. This is a fun place. <laughs> and I promise, I'm killing everyone in the polls. I can guarantee you this. I'm killing everyone in the polls. And if I'm elected president, I will kill everyone. I promise you. Full disclosure, Zach Carter and I had the uh, esteemed honor to be allowed to moderate the debates while they are here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Tony, welcome to So That Happened. Hey, guys. How are you? Thank you for having me on. And both of you, I mean, I could, you know, it's like children. I love you both in different ways. <laughs> great job to moderate. Well, thanks, Dad. <laughs> we want approval. <laughs> it's so exciting. We're the best. I will say this. Oh, God, that I already sort of trumped. But, like, <laughs> I will say this. DC, that, that stretch was the, the best stretch of the tour, in my view. Well, that's good to know. Mine as well. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the one of the things that I found really interesting about that uh, that experience of, of watching you and James debate was just how how you go about making somebody like Donald Trump funny, because there's a clear element of terror uh, to a lot of what you're doing. But it 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 genuinely people genuinely laugh at it, even though it's it's a in a, in a way very serious. How how do you go about finding that sweet spot? That's a good question. Um, it, it evolved. I think that the that over the course of doing this, um, I think that there is always a, an element of wanting to make sure you get something across. I think mostly because if I just did a straight up impression where all I was doing was echoing the things that he was saying, um, then really you're just sort of reinforcing the negative sort of bile that's coming out of him. And I, I felt like the only way to uh, sort of reshape him was to take an element of his personality, which I think is very much there, which is sort of a hapless buffoon. Like, he sort of is stumbling through it, right? He, he, he has a bravado that, that, that sort of carries him. And so when I saw the idea that, like, okay, he, what if a lot of these are just great misunderstandings, right? And, and as I started watching him, I realized, like, there is that, that, like, he really does believe when he says something. I, I believe this, that he says, well, I'd keep the good ones, the Mexicans, you know. I'd keep the good ones. I'd just make sure the rapists and criminals come in, don't come in, as if that's a possible, like, a logical thing. That he, in his mind, in his mind, he's like, I'm so good. I'm so benevolent, you know. He doesn't see it, I think, as the thing, the way it comes out. I can say very offensive things, but they're all sort of couched in this sort of, I'm a hero, uh, you, you're misunderstanding me, I'm a hero. Like that spotlight on the black community thing, right? Yeah. Where it's done from the orientation of, you know, it's double-edged, right? It's like, well, no, we want to, I want to see where they all are to protect them. But really the, the thing is, well, we want to see where everyone who's black is so that we can know where they are and keep them there. What, what is it that has, that has brought you to this point where you, you feel the need to express this, 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 this urgent need to sort of unmask Trump? I think pretty much in October. I think in October when you realized he was, you know, I started doing it in, in September and I really thought, oh, I'll have a month and he'll pull out. This isn't for real, you know. I think when he started talking about marking people and stopping people from coming into the country, especially after the Paris attack, and I, I, I realized that this guy is more than just a 
you know, a joke, he is letting his, his base fears uh, drive his thinking. And when you have a radically outsized ego and a, a sense of something to prove combined with all those things, that's a real recipe for a disaster of a person. And I think that I like to see it, honestly, I know this is going to sound like crazy, but it is in a way like, uh, it's like a, maybe I'm saying what he wishes he could say, like, get me out of this, you know, that like, I want him to go back to being a buffoon on TV. That's fine. Very, he's in safe space there. I don't want him to continue to outsize himself to the point where he becomes the president. You know, I think most people, uh, most people's exposure to political comedy, to the extent they have any, comes every four years from Saturday Night Live. And watching your uh, your performance, it, it it struck me that it was just very, very far removed from what happens on Saturday Night Live. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you to talk about the ways in which you think you think that. Um, the political comedy that you and James are doing differentiates maybe from, from I guess, more mainstream uh, attempts at political humor. You know, I think that it's not so much that, like, you know, SNL is not doing its job as much as I think that there, I think that in comedy itself, there has become a homogenous thing of, like, what is both purchased from networks to sell and also, like, what's allowable on television. We've actually gotten far more conservative with the types of perspectives that we allow to be shown on TV and and in in main media. I mean, you know, SNL, for instance, its market has definitely probably changed. I think I even read somewhere where Lauren Michaels said this, but I'm not going to and quoting him, that they realized that they had to shift to like 12 to 17-year-olds. Those are the kids who are staying home on Saturday night watching. And so, you know, I don't know if they ever claimed that they were the big political satire, you know, uh, people of the world. I think that they do <clears throat> what, you know, what any weekly variety show would do if it, you know, had to do comedy that reflected the world. I don't think they've ever said that they're the bastions of hardcore political satire. So I would differentiate that what James and I do uh, as, um, as, as maybe a sort of test uh, like a, what are you, like a, a sizzle reel or a canary in the, of the coal mine to say, listen, it's okay, and it can be funny, and it can also be challenging to um, hear comedically a reflection of what is the status quo in the, in, the, in the United States and our election system. You're in Arizona right now, and you've been all over the country. Um, how does your message resonate, and is there any kind of variance between an audience in D.C. versus an audience somewhere else? Well, yeah, you should have been in Phoenix. It was interesting. I mean, I, I'll, I'm speaking for me because I can't, you know, I don't know what James's perspective is in it. But, like, for me, you know, doing every time I do it, there's always this, like, oh, man, are people going to flip out? Are people going to start yelling? Are people going to – what if they laugh too hard? So, you know, I would say it varies. I think that's why I enjoyed DC, especially that Thursday night show. Tony, we really thank you for for joining us today. Uh, And thanks for having us as moderators. Um, And we wish you guys... We we, we would definitely sign up for another tour of duty. Um, We wish you the best on your tour. Have fun in Arizona. And uh, come back on the show sometime. Absolutely great. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You too. Thanks a lot. See you, Tony. And we'll be right back. 
And we're back. Hi, welcome back. Uh, welcoming uh, two people to the studio today. The first person, you've known him from previous podcast appearances, foreign policy reporter Akbar Ahmed. Hi. Welcome, welcome. And uh, also joining us is Amal Alderat, whose father and brother, two Libyan Americans, were detained in Dubai in August of 2014 by our trusted allies, the United Arab Emirates. And the Emiratis subsequently jailed them, and while they were incommunicado, brutally tortured them. They're now out in the open again, facing trial and potentially the death penalty. And Ms. Eldorado is speaking out on their behalf. The question for us today is why are two Americans being tortured by a United States ally in the war on terror? And what does this portend for our ongoing strategy in Libya? And so to begin with, Akbar... Let's just briefly talk about what's the situation in Libya right now and how and why the Emiratis are involved in this. So the Libya situation um, really began in 2011 when the U.S. and other countries, particularly European nations, went in, helped topple Gaddafi. Since then, there have been rival political and armed factions in the country. And what happened was... U.S. allies actually picked two sides, really not a fun thing, but something they deem necessary. The UAE supports secularists. They believe that a large segment of the people who've gained power are Muslim Brotherhood aligned. The UAE and a lot of other Gulf monarchies are terrified of the Muslim Brotherhood of political Islam. They're scared their own populations will come to support that ideology and depose monarchs. On the other side, you have Qatar and Turkey supporting uh, a number of a number of folks who are political Islamists, but a lot of folks who are not political Islamists, um, including militias aligned with the Libyan city of Misrata, a strong business hub, trade hub. The way the Emiratis got involved was they began backing the secularists against the Islamists. And by 2014, there were two rival governments in the country. That continues to be the case. Uh, you hear a lot about negotiations and a unity government being formed. Of course, the UN envoy who was meant to set up that UND government now works for the UAE. So it's a bit sketchy and we don't have um, any success yet at reconciling those two factions. But the UAE has a very strong interest in Libya. Okay. Uh, Ms. Alderat, uh, how did it come to pass that your father, Kamal Alderat, and your brother, Mohammed, found themselves in the position where they ended up being arrested by Emirati security forces and thrown into torture and imprisonment? So, um, first of all, thank you for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it all start. We were we were UAE residents for eighteen years. So we've been my parent, my family has been living peacefully f since ninety seven. Um, uh, like Akbar said, things have all changed when the civil war kicked off in August twenty fourteen. When there were two sides, um, what happened was in late August twenty fourteen there were airstrikes, and then there was two sides basically the war between the east and the west. In Libya. In Libya. Yeah, okay. Nothing to do with us in any way or form in the UAE, but it, we all know that we we feel like these charges are politically motivated. August 2014, airstrikes happen in the west of Libya. On 25th of August in 2014, the New York Times article comes out saying that indeed UAE and Egypt were striking Libya and state confirmed it. That that day caused a lot of angers in the streets of the West because um, the airstrikes caused the death of 30 people in the West of yeah. Libya. Air, uh, protests in the street, a lot of anger. 26th at night, you had security forces come pick up 10 of the most prominent businessmen, all from the West of Libya, 
in the UAE, and that includes my father and my brother. Now, your 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 brother, I believe, is like a, manages a Subway franchise. Yes. Yeah. So this is really kind of ridiculous. Were they? What were they accused of? Well. For 16 months, we did not know anything. It wasn't until they kept telling us that the case is under investigation, the case is under investigation. Um, and from August 2014 until January 18th, 2016, when they were finally allowed access to lawyer and access to um, their families, and we were told that they're charged with funding and supplying and cooperating with terrorist groups in Libya. Oh, my. Okay, so now we get to the grisly part. Um, what has their experience been like whilst under the delicate care of our allies in Dubai? Uh, um, it is basically the only way my dad can describe it is as the darkest days of his life. Um, so in the first four months, they were in disappearance. They were in a secret unknown location in secret detention. And then um, December 2014 was the first time they were removed from the secret unknown location to a general prison. And my dad told me that when he was moved to the general prison, he said the only way he could describe it is now he's in heaven. This prison is heaven in comparison to where they were. Um, my brother told me that the only way you can describe the location where they were at is the most technologically advanced haunted house, um, whether it's lighting and noises and buzzing sounds and torture. So uh, it was horrific. How are they doing now? Not so great. I mean, they're now being charged and they're, they could be at risk of facing the death penalty, so, and there's no appeal. Um, the, the court's case is, uh, the decision is final. You don't have right to appeal. And they're also being charged with a law that was actually, uh, became operational after their detention. So even the charges and the law that they so-called violated doesn't even apply to them. So the law was created after the arrest. Yes. Factor. Yeah, the terrorism law. So it was, uh, it became it was officially uh, printed in the UAE Gazette on in September 2014, and my dad and my brother were detained in August 2014. Hence, the reason the UN condemns my dad and my brother's relative. Sounds like a arrest. very competent competent judicial system they have there. Akbar, this is a story that has repeated itself throughout the war on terror. We've we've there have been multiple stories of innocent people being swept up. Uh, by God knows who, placed into black sites, tortured. Uh, people don't know what's going on. Their families are in disrepair and despair over this. And then when when it seems that all logic has finally been brought to bear and the light is shining on the mistake, it becomes even harder to, to extract innocent people from this kind of situation. And the kind of tactics that Amal was describing that her dad and her brother have been exposed to, so strange lighting, noises, these are things very reminiscent of what we hear about what's going on at Gitmo still to this day, right? Or at Black Side. So this kind of psychological and physical torture it doesn't necessarily need to be beating. It can just be sleep deprivation. Um, it can be other things hanging you from a wall or from chains. I mean, yeah. it, seems, it seems utterly... Uh gratuitous, right? I mean, right. they can't go into this thinking that these men have genuinely got information 
governing the, the, some kind of pertinent information about a terrorist attack or a terrorist organization. It seems absolutely, completely political. It's really hard to uh, for the U.S. to criticize these things. And as Amal can tell you, the State Department has spoken about it only once, I think, since the detention began in August 2014. It's really hard for the U.S. in a number of ways, right? The first is... The U.S. does this too. So you go to anyone and they say, well, you haven't closed Gitmo yet. The president said he would. It's not closed. Um, Second is that these are really important American allies. The UAE has the most advanced air force, one of the most advanced air forces in the world, even better than the American air force, because they can buy and afford any technology. And they bomb ISIS for the U.S. They do a bunch. Um, It's definitely also important to remember, though, that a lot of violations in the UAE happen to detainees. So Amnesty International, in commenting on the El Dorat's case, has noted that there's been an increase in talk of torture before they even bring people to court dates. Right. Um, so you can't even, once they're in court, as the UAE ambassador here has said, he said, well, they're in court now, they have an attorney, now it's fine. But it's the period before they got their trial date, which for Amal's father and brother was, like, I think, 14 months or 17 months? 17 months. 17 months. Are you satisfied with what the United States is doing to help secure your father and your brother's release? No, I'm not satisfied simply because my dad, uh, now as the detention of my dad and my brother continues, it's having a very bad effect on their physical well-being. I mean, my brother state contacted me and told me that unfortunately my brother lost his hearing from the torture in his left ear and that they're ensuring that he gets medical care, access to medical care, and that's that didn't take place. I mean, the my brother was complaining nonstop about, <coughs> excuse me, my brother was complaining nonstop about his, his, the pain in his ear and the damage that has caused his eardrum. And the U.S. Embassy in Abu Dhabi kept telling me that they're pushing to ensure he gets access to an ear specialist. And now 17 months later, my dad, my brother lost his hearing in his left ear. So it is it is simple things as me- basic medical care that we have not been that my dad and my brother have not been receiving. So I mean they're telling me that counselor services scope of work is very limited into ensuring that my dad and my brother get a fair trial. Fair trial, they're being charged under a law that that violates UAE constitution. Do you feel like the State Department thinks that this is legit what's happening? I don't think they think it's legit, but they're silent. They just lack the courage to do anything about it. Yes. Uh, Akbar, <laughs> what does this say about our war on terror effort, which is now over a decade long, uh, that the United States and their allies continue to demonstrate that they are incapable of acting competently? And, and also, right... Do- you might your biggest threat might not actually be living in an ISIS controlled area. It might be ending up in a secret facility well, in your sure, own country. Sure, yes, it could be corrupt but, government. Right. Yeah. Um and so that that really exposes the short termism of a lot of the thinking. Uh, and President Obama, to his credit, has indicated this in some public comments. He said this to the New York Times last April. He said, you know, maybe the bigger threat to Arab monarchies is what they do to their own citizens. The problem is they don't act on that kind of rhetoric, right? And they need these governments. I, I think Amal's mention of the New York Times article is a fascinating telling case. The UAE and Egypt, both of which have tons of American military aid, money, support, all sorts, ran secret missions over Libya that worsened the civil war without telling the US. Like, that's hilarious, right? They literally used American aircraft to worsen the civil war. And now Hillary Clinton and other American politicians are left looking terrible because... They enabled that. They allowed that. Um, 
and we profiled the UAE ambassador to Washington last year, Jason, as you remember. Yeah. This is an actor who remains incredibly influential, influential enough that when Amal's story got written up in the Washington Post, he declined to comment beyond statements saying, these are terrorists, these are terror charges, too bad. We don't know what other pressure the U.S. can offer. I think if you would go to the State Department, if you went to people who work with the UAE, uh, I was in, in the UAE in January and I was talking with Western officials there, they're almost apologists for these regimes because they have to be, because it looks like the only island of stability in the region, which is a terrible place to be in. All right. Uh, Ms. Alderat, wh- where do you hope things go from here? First of all, what I would hope for is actually for the UAE officials to follow their own constitution and dismiss the charges. Now, under UAE constitution, you cannot charge someone using a law that was retroactive. Correct. Yeah. So how about just the judge doing the it's right thing the and dismiss exactly <laughs> now if that doesn't work out then i i would would like that the us government to push and ensure that my dad and my brother get a fair trial that is what i'm hope i hope for and hopefully if we get a fair trial then i know that they will be released the only issue is now so far um we are now at the third hearing uh, i received the case file after 17 months i was you know trying to figure, you know, the whole time I was in darkness trying to see, like, what is the case file going to look like? What evidence? I mean, it's 17 months of investigation, guys, you know. I was thinking it would be, you know, a piece of work with evidence and statements and God knows what. It was nothing but 200 pages of signed confessions with insane confessions. I asked my brother, I was like, crying, telling him, why did you sign this? Did you read this? He's like, first of all, it was in Arabic and my brother's Arabic isn't so great. Kind of like Shaz's case where they just give you a bunch of documents and then they use them against you in court. And so basically here we are, 200 pages of signed confessions being used against my dad and my brother. And then on Monday's last hearing, the prosecutor decided to bring to the stand the witness. And the witness was the interrogator. And uh, my dad stood up and started shouting at the witness, telling him um, it was very emotional, apparently, um, telling him, I did not say these things. Say the truth, you're under oath. You know I did not say these things. I only said what I said because you threatened to hurt my wife and my daughters. And so the judge decided to close the hearing, and that's where we're at. Okay. Well, I'm very, very sorry to hear about this. Uh, (laughs) Ms. Alderaad, thanks for joining us today. And Thank we'd love you, to guys. have you back on. Akbar, of course, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. And uh, here's a little unusual thing we'll do today. Uh, Virginia was one of the, st- the, the, the states that voted in the Super Tuesday primary. It's early time for Virginia to have a primary. And uh, I happen to be the only person here in the office who lives in Virginia. So I'm the only person here who cast a vote on Super Tuesday. And the way I voted has fascinated my colleagues. And so I'm going to... We think you're weird. I'm going to allow my colleagues to interrogate me for the way I voted on Super Tuesday. I'm Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined by my colleague, Zach Carter. Hi, guys. Firing line. And Jason Lincolns, we understood that you voted on the Republican side in Virginia's Super Tuesday primary election. What happened? 
Well, that's correct. In Virginia, we have an open primary, and uh, we're allowed to uh, pick one of the two ballots to vote on. But um, I requested on uh, this occasion the Republican ballot. and. And I voted uh, for uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Whoa! Whoa. Yeah. So why, was this just because you you couldn't decide between uh, between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders? Like many people in our office are torn. Uh, no, no. Uh, wh- what I what I recognized going into the primary was that Virginia had already decided between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and that they had decided. Uh, in Clinton's favor. And so it really didn't make a dime's worth of difference what I had to say about the Democratic primary. And, um, you know, I would say I'm generically content with either with either candidate. I'm one of like most liberals in the the country um, where I have reasons to prosecute both of them. But in in the sense that, you know, would I accept them as my nominee? Sure. So why Marco Rubio out of out of the choices you had (laughs) on the GOP side? I gamed it out, and uh, I realized that what I wanted to do on Super Tuesday was uh, cast a vote uh, against fascism. And uh, my thought was what needed to be done was to try to keep Donald Trump's delegate count down, and that Marco Rubio probably needed a little bit of help to to get over the 20% threshold to claim delegates away from Donald Trump. And so... I and and it, apparently a lot of other Virginians it worked. Um, well, I don't, let me just say I'm, I'm I'm going to downrate the consequentialness of what I did in a minute, but it did. It, a lot of Virginians felt the same way, and they turned out in some small number for Rubio. I would imagine that a lot of Democrats who also voted in crossover fashion in Virginia voted for Donald Trump, and I would imagine they did that on the basis of they thought. Donald Trump would be an easy pickings candidate for the Democrat and that uh, Marco Rubio would actually be a difficult candidate for Clinton or Sanders to beat. I understand that strategically, that strategic thinking, and I contemplated doing the same at one point. Uh, But, you know, his rise has disturbed me greatly. It's disturbed me greatly because I didn't take it seriously when it first began. Uh, And I personally think that you're always taking a chance with a with a dangerous nominee, even if you think you can pick him off. Well, too bad for you and Marco Rubio that John Kasich was hanging around to spoil his chance to actually win the state. Well, yeah, sure, I guess. You know, the the point is the point was never to enable Marco Rubio to necessarily win the state. I didn't think I didn't think that was possible. But isn't this an interesting an interesting conundrum here? I mean. The ideal situation for Democrats, I think, would be for Donald Trump to get the nomination, essentially destroy the Republican Party, and then lose in a landslide to Hillary Clinton. But there's still a chance that he, I think, is a more potent general election candidate than people people anticipate. And there's still a chance that he wins the Republican nomination and then becomes president. My, my idea here was, like, let's hope that Marco Rubio ends up the nomination if we have to have a Republican president. Uh, it was more the thinking that Donald Trump's policies are either incoherent or stated through a specifically fascist frame. I mean, let's remember, he essentially has now indicated that he will uh, fight the First Amendment. Uh, oh, we're all going to jail. Uh, yeah, yeah. Having a post is in deep uh, shit. Yeah, we're in jail. So, all right, we'll get great traffic, but we'll be in jail. So, so uh, I, I was not in any way making an affirmative case for Marco Rubio's candidacy. Rather, I was, I was engaging in what they call negative partisanship. All right. Jason Lincoln's 
voter. Didn't work. Thank Sorry, you. America. You're on your own now. Say no to fascism. <laughs> yeah, I'll get another chance in November to cast a vote against fascism, and I'll be proud to do it then, too. Bye. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Amal Alderat, comedian Anthony Atamanik, as well as Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. This podcast was sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts through the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.